Uh, we'll turn to the Word of God now, the Scriptures of Truth. And I use that term because it was used very recently by Anne Hegarty. I don't know if you know that name, if you watch The Chase on a five o'clock. Um, Isabel shared it on Facebook the other day that she obviously reads a lot of uh, literature and books to find answers, obviously, in the quiz show. And she's obviously read the Bible, and she said that she couldn't find any reason why the Bible wasn't true. And she put her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, I find that real encouragement that somebody as high profile as that can call these the scriptures of truth. And that's what we're going to read this morning in 1 Peter um, from verse uh, 17 to 25. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people, all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Amen. Thank you for all that has happened already this morning. Thank you for the way you've put this gathering together, for all that we've heard from your word and all that we've sung, from all that we've heard as we thought about the Lord Jesus coming into the world. And now as we've thought about our true home, the true home of those whose faith and trust is in you, to which we will uh, one day go, grant, Father, that nothing will prevent that from happening. Speak to us now, our God, from the pages of your word. Please protect us from the malevolence of the enemy in stealing away truth or in messing things up and muddying the waters. Grant that that will not happen. Grant us clear thought. Grant me help in my weakness in proclaiming your word and grant us a real sense together of your presence. Do us good, our God, as we come to think about this awesome truth. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Um, there must be some kind of climate change. I'm watching Andrew walking about there with a t-shirt, and here am I with a shirt and a sweater and a tea bag. Uh, it's been perfectly comfortable in here, but uh, I just need a wee bit more. It must be getting old. Uh, in fact, there's no question about it. I'm getting old. 
Um, but uh, it's lovely to see you all this morning. And thank you all of you who came yesterday and supported uh, that great day with the, the, the breakfast and the car wash and the, and the coffee shop. And uh, Lynn was telling me uh, about 900 pounds were raised and we give thanks to God for that and for all the effort and all the love that went into that and for the great message it sent to people uh, that this is a, a fellowship that loves this community and wants to reach out with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. There was a season in our lives as a family many years ago when I had to, and this dates the story, but it's absolutely true, I had to reset the clock on the video recorder every morning. Because along with every other electrical appliance in the house, it had been un unplugged the night before. Our girls had had a visit at the school from the fire service, who came and gave them a very effective talk about the prevention of fires in the home. And we had to negotiate about the fridge and the freezer uh, remaining switched on. <laughs> but they saw hazards everywhere after they heard that talk. And a fear of there being a fire in their house meant that they were doing everything they could to keep us all safe. Now, I wasn't annoyed at the fire service. They had put the fear in my girls, and that fear gave them an awareness of danger. And by that means, they were kept safe, and they could sleep reasonably soundly in their beds. Now, I mentioned that this morning because as we come to our final study in 1 Peter for this year, Peter would put the fear of God into us in this text. He would put the fear of God into all of our hearts. Have a look at verse 17, the end of it there. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, this may seem incongruent after all the reassurance and all the wonderful spiritual security he's written about so far. So we don't forget chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who, verse 5, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter has told us that the glories of heaven are being kept safe for us. And he's told us in verse 5 that we are being kept safe to one day experience the glories of heaven through faith. That key word, through faith. God's power, we're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, of which we've just sung in that song. Now, there is always the danger, you see, that our sinful hearts deceive us and take us away from living faith in the Lord Jesus and away from those better-than-cast-iron securities offered to those who continue in their faith. And that's why Peter writes about the fear of the Lord. He's not the only New Testament writer to do so, not the only biblical reference to the fear of the Lord. If you get a good concordance, it will reward your payment. I can't go at your study. I won't go through it all this morning, but it says so much consistently about a proper understanding of what it means to live in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a strong prescription against a deadly disease. 
What is the deadly disease? Well, I look around this morning, I see some young people, and I know from talking to you that some of you are in preparation for exams. Uh, you have your prelims maybe before Christmas or maybe just after Christmas. And I know that if, if you're anything like me, if you were told by your teacher, look, um, you've got an A pass, it's, it's an absolute guarantee. I've already put the mark in the register. But, you know, carry on with your coursework, continue to study. The second half of that would not happen if it was me. It would be toes up for a pretty relaxed Christmas. No question about that. And for Peter's readers then and now, the danger is that we read these early verses of chapter 1, and we see all that the Lord has done for us, and we actually, although we wouldn't put it in this term, we actually begin to despise it because, well, our salvation's in the bag. He's, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. We have got a, an imperishable prospect, and He's keeping us safe. It's in the bag. Nothing to worry about. Don't need to take the Lord too seriously in my daily life. That's the deadly disease. And again, when you look across the whole Bible history, you'll see from Old Testament Israel all the way through the New Testament churches, this is always the danger. This is always the trajectory that our human hearts will take us in. So we need a strong prescription against this deadly disease. And that's what Peter is helping us with in this section this morning. I'm afraid I am, once again, I'm a false prophet. We're not going to get all of this section done down to the end. Um, but we'll, we'll get a good chunk of it done today. I'd, I want us to really focus on understanding what all this means. This is what Peter is helping us with. How do we practically respond in life to all that the Lord has done for us in Christ? Well, I can identify four action points for us here. Um, and some of these verses Jonathan covered so helpfully last week. I was watching online in the morning with Jonathan in the evening with Simon, and I know like you, I was so encouraged by our brother's ministry last weekend. It was outstanding in the morning and the evening. So grateful to God for that. So nothing needs to be said by way of uh, recapturing certainly what Jonathan said in the morning, but I want us to see it in sequence. I've no need to add anything to what he said, but I want to make sure that we see the link between verses 17 to 21 and verse 13 to 16, and it will help me to have a run at verse 17 if we just back up a little and remind ourselves. So, four action points for dealing practically in life with all that the Lord has made possible for us, all that He promises to us in Christ that will keep us focusing in Him. Number one, think clearly. Therefore, verse 14, uh, sorry, verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. We'll stop there for a moment. And a brother explained last weekend, the original word picture that Peter was using here was the, the guys with the long robes, and they would gather them up, the, this mobile trip hazard. They would, they would gather them up and tuck them into their belts so they could move with speed and ease and alacrity. And that's, that's the point. He, he, Jonathan explained, that's what we, we're called to do mentally, we need to be prepared to, to think with that level of alacrity, to think with, as someone has said, energy and clarity about the content of the first 12 verses we've already seen. We know that Peter's referring back to this because of that mighty therefore at the beginning of verse 13. It links the two halves of this chapter, if you're looking at it. 
And it indicates that Peter is instructing us now in the light of what he's already written. So he's saying to us, how do you respond to a God who's done all this for you in Christ? Number one, you think clearly about what he's done. You do the hard work. This is why our Saturday setup, as we've been talking about it, as we prepare for the Lord's day, as we ask the Lord's blessing, not only on the preacher, but on the hearer, as we ask the Lord to meet with us personally, as we ask Him to speak to us from His Word, and then our Sunday seed time, as we try to get a bit of time on a Sunday or in the beginning of the week to gather up what we believe we've heard from the Word, to read the passages again, to think about it, to see how it's going to impact our lives. These things are no gimmick. These things are not really an optional extra. We have to find ways of hearing and doing, of building on the rock, of thinking with clear, sober minds. A sober mind is the opposite of an inebriated mind. That's why I'm just going with clear thinking as this first summary title. To think clearly about what we're seeing in the Word of God about what he's done for us. That's, that's, that's the first thing. Think clearly. The second thing, hope fully. Verse 13, second half. Prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there is a day coming, again, we've just been singing about it wonderfully, when the Lord Jesus will return. And uh, as the hymn says, Jesus is Lord, a shout of joy, a cry of anguish. So that phrase, Jesus is Lord, will be for some when he comes, a shout of joy. For others, it will be a cry of anguish. Oh, Jesus is Lord, and I've ignored him, and I've rebelled against him, and I have mocked him, and I have used his name as a swear word, and I haven't given him a thought, and now it turns out he is Lord, and I'm going to stand before him. Jesus is Lord. A shout of joy, a cry of anguish on that day when he comes. And everyone will stand before him. But those who have been born again can look ahead with joy to that day. And what are we going to experience in that day? We're going to experience fresh deliveries of grace as we stand before the Lord. Not the wrath we deserve. So the fear we have is not a fear of what, what is that going to be like. If my trust is really in Christ, what is it going to be like to stand before him on that day? We are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we've known grace now, but boy will we know grace in that day. When our lives are known and opened, the books are opened, we stand before the Lord. And we are to set our hope fully on that grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. Now, what I find very interesting here is the linkage of two big issues in your life in verse 13. Where does your hope reside? Hopes that you have in your heart. Well, they're in your heart. Even the old football song tells us to walk on with hope in our heart. Hope is an emotional thing. So I wonder if you see in verse 13 how Peter bridges the gap between our minds, where we need to do the, th the clear thinking, and our hearts. He links our thinking and our 
feeling. And the order of the, of the verse shows us that actually accurate thinking leads to appropriate feeling. It's pretty plain, isn't it, in verse 13? That is, as we prepare our minds for action, as we get them ready to have a workout in the Word, that we think clearly with that sober-mindedness, it is as we do that that we find this hope rising in our hearts. So our emotions take their instruction from our, our thinking. Now, that's the polar opposite of how we would live by nature. It's the polar opposite of how millions of people live. I guess most people live their lives thinking that actually their feelings control their thinking. How they feel defines them, tells them what to think. Their emotions control their mentality to some degree. And Peter reminds his readers here that that is how they used to live. He says there in verse uh, 14, have a look at it, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions, that is to the strong desires of your former ignorance. He's talking about the time when we did not know Christ, when we were ignorant of all that God had done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says we were, we were just pushed around by these strong desires. We were conformed. We were shaped, pulped into the, our whole lives pulped into the shape that these passions, these strong desires had within us. So I'm not at all being snooty or critical, as though, that, as though I don't understand people whose feelings control their thinking. Not at all. That's me by nature. That's all of us by nature. There are these tremendously strong currents. Uh, we cannot control them. We cannot withstand them. They are the passions that arise in us because of our natural ignorance of the truth. And because these things are woven into our deepest emotions, they feel as though they are the true us. And you'll often hear that language expressed nowadays as people talk about their, try to unpack their identity or discover a new identity. And it's all based on feeling. So I totally understand that. And often people will defend these emotions because when our passions are strong in our urges, our desires, when they define us, then anybody who comes along and just wants to talk to us about it or, or even questions the wisdom of it, that feels like a very personal attack because these are my feelings. So like you, I'm in the battle every day to think clearly in the Lord Jesus and to hope fully in the Lord Jesus, so that my emotions, my feelings that are very strong, are under the control of my thinking and not the other way around. But I want us just to see this morning in this verse before we move on that the gospel does not call us to suppress our emotions. It certainly does not call us to be emotionless people. It certainly does not call us to do away with these inner feelings and stirrings. It tells us that we are to direct them. Not to negate them, not to deny them, not to suppress them, but to direct them. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I want to say as a little parenthesis this morning that tomorrow night there's a group of us meeting to prepare for a series that we're running in January called Hope Explore, January the 16th and 23rd and 30th. We're going to be talking about these very issues. Where do we locate hope in this world? Where do we locate hope in this life? And the definition we're going to use is this, that Christian hope is a glorious prospect in the future, which is exactly what verse 13 is talking about, based on historical events in the past that changes everything in the present. So a glorious hope for the future based on historical reality in the past that changes everything in the moment. And we would love you to join us for these three Tuesday evenings and and hear about this and think about this with us and talk through these things and discover this most long-for experience hope. That these, these little invitation and information cards are available. There's a QR card. There's all kinds of details there. They're at the table at the back. Please Take one if you're at all interested, or if you have a friend that you would like to bring, please do that. And there's information about how you can register. But the main point today is to see that this relationship between our thinking controls our feelings. Giving your mind a workout at the beginning of verse 13, and I don't mean we have to be trying to be profound or complicated. I I don't mean that at all. I just mean, for example, if, if you were just to chew on the first 12 verses we've looked at this year of 1 Peter 1 or what we're seeing on Sunday nights in Jonah. If you were just to go away and chew on that for a while mentally and reset it again in your mind and think clearly about these things, the result, the result of that would, 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 would be that you set your hope fully on the Lord Jesus and on the grace that we'll experience when he returns. So think clearly, hope fully. Thirdly, be holy. Now, I hardly need to say anything about this since Jonathan opened this up so helpfully last weekend. But let's walk through the verse again. Verse 14, there it is. As obedient children, and just pause there for a second because that obedience, we already know that is nothing less than what God planned to work in his people since before the creation of the world. So it'll be easy to skip past these three words, as obedient children. But that obedience is not natural. That's not who I am by nature. It's not who you are by nature. When Paul writes to those who are now obedient children, a miracle has taken place in their lives. And the miracle is the thing that God has planned to do in the lives of his people since before the creation of the world. Remember chapter 1, verse 1. He's writing to those who are elect exiles. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. So back to verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And Peter's going to say more about these passions. But you might want to just glance ahead one chapter, chapter 2, verse 11, where he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, temporary residents, in other words, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. There's the same word and the same phrase. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? Because they wage war against your soul. So let's get that crystal clear in our minds this morning. As we think of the passions, as we think of these things that stir within us, 
They have the capacity to wage war against our eternal souls and take us away from the Lord who saved us and called us to be different. So verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, so also you be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. As we heard last weekend, the sign that we are in the family is that we become increasingly like our Father. That's what He's out to accomplish. Obedience to His Son, sprinkling with His blood. And the way that happens, the way we become the real deal, the way we become those who are increasingly like our Heavenly Father is, can you see, the engagement of our minds on the truth of the gospel leads to the focus of our emotions on the hope of the gospel. And both of these lead to the, sh the living of our lives according to the shape of the gospel. Let me say that again. The engagement of our minds on the truth of the gospel, as we think clearly about these things, leads to the focus of our emotions on the hope of the gospel as we set our hope fully on the grace to be given when Jesus is revealed. And both of these things lead to the shaping of real lives, Monday morning, this is how it's going to happen, this is how you're going to be different, the shaping of your life by the gospel. So, think clearly, hopefully, be holy, but now fear rightly. So we come to verse 17, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves, a very important word, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, as I've already said this morning, this, this verse 17 may feel like a cold bucket around you. But I hope to show you that it's not that at all. How does fear fit? How on earth are we to understand all that God has done for us, all the love he's shown for us, and be talking about the necessity of an element of fear in the life of a healthy Christian? Well, notice first how Peter frames it. I think he does it in two ways. He talks about the impartiality of our judge, and he talks about the generosity of our father. So let's look at these in turn. He bases this fear factor on the impartiality of our judge. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a reality about our Heavenly Father that we might easily overlook or forget. That as well as being the Father on whom we call, which He is, He is also the impartial judge before whom we stand. If you call on Him, verse 17, as Father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds. And what Peter is getting at here, when he speaks of God's impartiality, he simply means this. The fact that if I live a careless life and dishonor the Lord and go through my life effectively loving what he hates and uh, hating or at least disregarding what he loves, and then I come to stand before him on this last day, expecting to receive the grace that verse 13 and 14 speak about, claiming that I'm his true child, 
His impartiality means he will know the spiritual reality on that day. Do you remember Jesus in Matthew 7? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and it's a protest. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And I was, were we not preachers in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And says the Lord Jesus in Matthew 7, 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's very, very stirring and very, very striking. The impartiality of God means that he will not be swayed by passionate, desperate appeals. He will not be swayed on the judgment day by a bulging file of all the spiritual activity that I've been involved in. How I was a pastor for all these years and preached in all these places and talked to all these people and none of that will count for everything, for anything, if when God looks, he sees the reality that these things were just dandruff on my shoulder. They were nothing to me. And the reason I think that Jesus uses the, the, the prophets, the preachers of the day, I think the reason he uses that example is that God is fair. Imagine the postman is up next to the preacher. And the postman's thinking, but this guy in front of me in the judgment, he's, he's a preacher. He's, he's bound to be safe. And what have I done? But God looks at the, he looks at the preacher and he says, you had more opportunity. You had more time in my word. You had more access to me than, the, than these other guys. So that's why in the Bible, those who preach will be judged more strictly. James chapter 3, isn't it? Because God is fair. He's impartial. So me for my life, you're for your life. He's utterly, utterly fair, totally impartial. He won't take into account any claim we make, any plea, that it tries to excuse the fact that basically we ignored him. Because not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That person has nothing to fear on that day. So the thing to fear is not our father being unjust in his judgment. Never, brother and sister, never for a minute go away from here thinking we've got to fear because we can't really be sure that God is going to come through for us in the last day. There is no debate about that. Your name is graven on his hand. Your hand, your heart uh, your name is written in his heart. He has covenantally bound himself to his people. The only thing to fear is that you might cease to live a life of real living, trusting faith in him and back away from him. It's not how he will treat you you need to worry about. It. It's how you will treat him. He won't change his mind about those who are truly his. That won't happen. The thing to fear is making a claim to saving faith, but living a life that ignores him. So thinking about what we've already seen in verses 13 to 16 this morning, living a life where there's really no effort to think clearly. 
where our emotions are all over the place, but they're not setting our hope fully on the grace that is to come when Jesus is revealed. A life that is, there's no sense of us having that twang of conscience that we think, I don't think I can engage in this conversation, or I don't think I can watch this program, or I don't think I can go and do this thing, or I, because I love the Lord, I want to be more like Him. That's, that's healthy. When there's none of that going on, no increase in a sense of being like our Father in holiness. No fearing rightly. That's the thing to fear. And it's perilously easy to slip away into that way of living. We should fear that. And our fear of that will serve us well. And notice that we're to fear it throughout the time of our exile. As a younger man, I used to look at my seniors and imagine that by the time I was their age, really all the big battles with sin would be behind me. So in my teens and so on, and all the things that are just battering you at that stage in life, and then you look ahead to those who are 20 or 30 years ahead, and you think, it'd be great to get to that point where all the battles of sin are, are over, and it'll be lovely to be able to be so established as a Christian that you can just coast home into heaven. That is unbiblical fantasy. I now know that myself. But Peter would have told me that at the beginning. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, we're not to give up conducting ourselves with fear that we might fall back into a careless, God-dishonoring life. We're not to give up on conducting ourselves with that kind of fear until we're no longer in exile, which means no longer strangers in this world, which means home safe with the Lord in, the, in that home about which we just sang a minute ago. There we'll find our home, our life before the throne. You can stop fearing then. But the most senior saint among us this morning, the most senior believer, who's been the longest on the road, and those who are just beginning, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Don't, lay, don't let go on this. Know your own heart. Know the propensity in your heart to turn away from the Lord. So that's the first reason we should conduct ourselves with fear. The impartiality of our judge. The second thing is the generosity of our God. So second part of verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the, the time of your exile. Knowing. That's a very important word. That's why you've got to think clearly with your mind. That's why you've got to get the mobile trip hazard that's in here out of the way. So you can think clearly. So that you can know things. Conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I wonder, do you get the picture? The picture here is that we were all helplessly held captive. And we, we, we are so conscious, aren't we, as we look at the crisis in the Middle East in these days, of what it is to be helplessly held captive to be grabbed and put in the back of a motorcycle and driven away screaming and not a thing you can do about it. We were all helplessly held captive in the futile state into which we were born, a, a spiritually futile state. 
but a ransom price was paid to set us free. And it wasn't millions of pounds or billions of pounds. It was something infinitely more valuable to God. He paid our ransom to set us free from that futility, from that utter spiritual hopelessness of eternity without God. He paid a ransom in the precious blood of his son. Oh, you know, it cost God so dearly to make it possible for you and me to be his obedient children. Should we not then fear when we find that there are aspects of our lives in which we're quite willingly disobedient to his word and disregarding of his ways? Should we not then fear that if we were like that, willingly, knowingly, repeatedly, unrepentantly sinful and rebellious? Should we not fear that we are treating that inexpressibly precious blood as though it amounted to not, not much more than a pile of chocolate coins? Look at what he has done for us in giving his son to die in our place. Verse 20, he was foreknown, the Lord Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It's a great explanation of why we celebrate Christmas, isn't it? That might be good for one of our Christmas services, that verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. He was revealed. What was always there was made clear in the last times for your sake. Think what God has done to make us his. The Father gave the Son. The Son shed his blood and gave his life. Then the Father raised his Son from the dead and gave him the name that is above every name, so that if you don't come to God through Jesus, you don't come to God at all. Just a word to those of you this morning, maybe watching online, who would say, oh, I believe in God. On the strength of this verse, can you see that if you don't get to God through Jesus, you don't get to God? It's through him that we're believers in God. God has made himself known. He has manifested himself in the person of his son. So you get to know God through Jesus. And if you don't come to know God through Jesus, then the God you believe in is not the real God. And it's no use even thinking that your faith is in God through Jesus if the staggering generosity of God and the giving of his perfect son's precious blood to be shed to free us from our sin doesn't make us fear ever going back to living an ongoing life of unchecked rebellion against him, spurning the ransom he paid. So when you see the impartiality of the judge and when you see the generosity of our God, these things are meant to create in us a sense of the awesome wonder of it, the tremendous value of it, the preciousness of it to us, and to make us feel, I'm not going to mess this up. I'm going to live in the light of this. I'm not going to go back and mess about in the sin that is so attractive to me still, but it costs my Savior his blood 
to free me from that. What a slap in the face that would be to go back willfully and deliberately and repeatedly and unrepentantly to that kind of life. That's the danger that Peter is highlighting. I wonder, can you see as we close now, and I, this literally is the end, can you see the quality of this fear with which we are to conduct ourselves? It's a fear that only a true believer can ever experience. It's not the fear of a God who threatens us. Rather, it's the fear of us ever despising and devaluing him and what he's done. And I wonder, can you see this morning that a right fear a right and appropriate fear of ever moving from a position of daily faith and loving obedience, that fear keeps us safe. Like the talk from the fire master, did its work to keep my kids safe, my girls safe. This is not meant, as, meant to make us think of how scary God is. It's meant to make us realize how loving our God is. And all that security in verses 3, 4, and 5, that is still there by faith. And the thing he would develop in our lives is a healthy fear of no longer living by that faith. In spite of the fact that we have some kind of profession logged away in our minds. So brothers and sisters, think clearly. Hope fully. Be holy. Fear rightly. Let's pray together. All flesh is like grass in its glory, like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And Father, this eternal word of yours has come to our hearts this morning. We seek your fatherly blessing upon us. We ask that you would take away any misunderstanding, any false inappropriate fears, but give us that right sense of fearing the propensity, the natural inclinations of our own hearts to forget who you are and what you've done. And grant that that fear will be a joyful fear that keeps us loving you and proving your love and knowing the security for those whose trust is in you. And for any who doesn't know Christ this morning, for anyone listening to this at a distance or right here in the hall who doesn't know the Lord Jesus, oh, Father, would you work in our hearts to open our eyes to bring us to trust this one who gave his life for us in whose precious name we pray. Amen.